We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, online conspiracy theories, folklore, legends, cryptids, you name it, probably have discussed it, and as always, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you and more than likely what your Valentine from grade three would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, I'm discussing a true crime case, but before we dive into the case, I need to tell you what I need a distraction from. If you want to hear your reason for a distraction read on a future episode, feel free to email me at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Now, my need for a distraction this week comes from the website All That's Interesting, which shout out to All That's Interesting. You are a good resource and you give me nightmares. So it's a mixture of both chaotic good and chaotic bad. But they posted on their Instagram feed this news update out of Alabama. And basically, I'm just going to read the title. Scientists in Alabama just created genetically modified catfish with alligator DNA. The caption reads, scientists at Auburn University in Alabama recently created genetically modified catfish using alligator DNA. Researchers extracted the cathocidin gene of an alligator, which is found in the creature's intestines, and helps them fight off diseases and infections from wounds sustained while fighting with other alligators. They then use CRISPR to insert the gene into the DNA of a farm-raised catfish, hoping it would make them less susceptible to the diseases that kill 40% of young catfish. And so far, it seems to be working. Now you're probably thinking, Alex, why do you need a distraction from that? You A, don't live in Alabama, and B, what, what's the problem? It seems like it's a positive thing. Well, you know what? I'm not a scientist and it maybe is a positive thing, but I'm just afraid of fish. I'm just going to say it. And mixing alligator DNA and fish DNA, I don't know. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. I think catfish and alligators and everything in between aside, let's just get into this week's episode because I need to not think about catfish for a minute. <laughs> For this week's true crime case, I'm taking us to June of 1999 to discuss the unsolved murder of Ricky McCormick. Ricky's unsolved murder, or unsolved death, has left many questioning what happened, especially surrounding the cryptic notes that were left. Due to potential coarse language, mentioning of sexual assault, crimes against minors, discussions of murder, and other adult themes, listener discretion is advised. Ricky's story starts when he was born a Gemini on June 14th of 1958 in Missouri within the United States. From what I gathered, it seemed as though he hung around the greater St. Louis, Missouri area for most of his life, but he would also reside in Illinois as well. Ricky reportedly dropped out of high school and would reside with his mother, Frankie Sparks, on and off throughout his life. 
It seems, based on what I saw online, that Ricky may have had an undiagnosed mental health disorder, with some resources claiming it was either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, and these were backed by some members of his family. I also came across some resources noting that Ricky was illiterate and struggled with dyslexia. Family members have reportedly stated in interviews that Ricky was known to tell tall tales and displayed unusual behavior from a young age. Speaking of, his aunt reportedly disclosed for a Riverfront Times article that Ricky had seen a psychiatrist once who told Ricky he, quote, had a brick wall in his mind. Further from that article, his cousin reported that Ricky would often talk, quote, like he was in another world. As well, it was documented that he suffered from chronic heart and lung problems. He reportedly worked odd jobs throughout his life, such as being a floor mopper, a dishwasher, a busboy, and a service station attendant. Ricky wasn't documented to be married, but there were some resources I came across noting that he had around four children. And the children aspect of Ricky's life is where things get a little complicated and downright concerning for a lack of a better description. So I'm just going to put a bit of a trigger warning, and by a bit I mean a a big trigger warning, as I'm about to discuss sexual assault regarding a minor. So if you're not in the headspace to listen to that today, I totally get it. You can skip ahead a couple minutes. I'd say about two to three minutes. In 1992, it was reported that St. Louis police arrested Ricky after discovering he had fathered two of the alleged four children with a young girl who was actually younger than 14 years old at the time. Accounts claim Ricky had been sleeping with this girl since she was 11 years old. Ricky was charged with a first-degree sexual abuse charge, where his lawyer reportedly requested him to be assessed to see if he was fit to stand for trial. He was assessed, deemed fit to stand, and eventually would plead guilty. He supposedly spent 13 months behind bars in the Farmington Correctional Center before being sent home a year early on a conditional sentence, according to the Riverfront Times article. So now, jumping to 1999, when he was about 41 years old, Ricky was reportedly unemployed and receiving disability welfare. On June 15th of 1999, Ricky reportedly purchased a one-way ticket to Orlando via a Greyhound bus. Ricky allegedly would go twice to Orlando in 1999 and reportedly stayed at the Econo Lodge. Accounts claim he supposedly would bring back marijuana from these trips, which was further noted in a YouTube video I came across by user That Chapter, where it was indicated that Ricky allegedly brought back a baseball-sized Ziploc bag of marijuana, which is Orlando known for the devil's lettuce? Like, is, is that what it's known for? I thought it was known for, like, Disneyland or World or whatever is actually in Orlando. But is it known for marijuana? I didn't know that. And I am lear- I feel like I'm learning something now, if that is the case. Anyways, according to the previously mentioned Riverfront Times article, Ricky supposedly would never disclose any details about his 1999 trip to Orlando. Neither trip. He would not really divulge in any information. He wouldn't disclose what he did while he was down there, who he interacted with, nothing. No detail whatsoever. In that same article, it was noted that others that knew Ricky really well had shared he seemed different when he got back after the June 15th trip to Orlando. His then-girlfriend indicated that to her, Ricky seemed scared 
even paranoid. By June 22nd of that same year, Ricky reportedly attended the Barnes Jewish Hospital's emergency room alone, in which he was allegedly complaining of chest pains and shortness of breath. As mentioned earlier, Ricky struggled from asthma and chest pain since childbirth, so this was somewhat normal for him. During this visit, and perhaps previous ones, Ricky would inform doctors he didn't abuse drugs or alcohol, which is a statement that both friends and family have since validated. But he did have a supposed pack-a-day habit when it came to cigarettes, and he allegedly drank more than 20 caffeinated beverages a day, which, based on what I came across online, was kind of something that physicians came up with, kind of a grouped number based on Ricky's disclosure. So he might have not necessarily drank 20 caffeinated beverages a day, but he drank quite a bit of caffeinated beverages which I'm not a physician by any means, shape, or form, but considering he had heart problems since he was young, that's probably not a good mixture whatsoever. But who am I to judge? And I mean, I shouldn't say anything considering I will literally drink myself into an anxiety attack. I don't recommend it. Don't do it. But it, it, ha it happens. According to the Morbidology website, which shout out Emily from the Morbidology podcast, you should definitely check out that show. On June 25th of that year, Ricky was seen at the Forest Park Hospital in St. Louis, which is less than two miles from the Barnes Jewish Hospital. Ricky was reportedly doing a checkup due to shortness of breath again and potentially picking up medication. Supposedly, he wasn't admitted into the hospital and may have left the hospital before 6 p.m. However, that isn't necessarily matter of fact. On June 26, accounts claim that Ricky spoke with his then-girlfriend, who he informed that he was out of the hospital and was on his way to the Amoco gas station to get a bite to eat, coming directly from the Riverfront Times website. The next day, Ricky was apparently witnessed at the gas station by an Amoco station employee. Ricky's lifeless body was located a few days after he visited the gas station on June 30th of 1999. Ricky hadn't been reported missing as of yet, and his body was reportedly found in between a cornfield and a road near West Alton, Missouri, by a woman who was driving along near Route 367. Now, where his body was found has been described as being a bit odd, as he was about 15 to 20 miles away from his home in St. Louis. The reason this is considerably weird is because Ricky didn't own a vehicle and the area was not served by public transportation, which to me is suspicious and begs many questions. Did he walk there or was he disregarded there? On top of that weirdness, some resources I came across claim that that area is a known criminal dumping ground, which I think given this information, a lot of people point at this being a homicide case, and we will get to that in a little bit. From what I gathered, Ricky's body had already been far in the decomposition process, but he was able to be identified through fingerprints. Despite being able to identify him, not much was really able to be further fully determined forensics wise. However, they were able to determine something. So, for example, reports claim that medical examiners felt that Ricky's decomposition was advanced given that they believed he only died three days prior. Now, the weather during his time of death and discovery was also noted to be moderate. So, when it came to trying to figure out why his body had been in the decomposition stage that it was in, wasn't necessarily a reason. It wasn't the weather that had caused this to happen. And because the weather wasn't maybe the reason behind the progressed decomposition, from what I gathered, there wasn't really anything further that the investigators could determine why his body was in the stage it was. 
In terms of cause of his passing, Ricky's death was ruled by natural causes, as examiners nor other investigators could determine fully if it was an actual homicide due to the decomposition and lack of other evidence found on site. But police would reportedly admit that even though there wasn't necessarily any hard, cold evidence to prove otherwise, they believe Ricky had been a victim of homicide. Captain David Teffenbrunn, the Bureau Commander of Criminal Investigations for the St. Charles County Police Department, was quoted saying about the case, quote, if I was to rely on my police instincts, there probably is some foul play. We just haven't been able to prove it, end quote. However, what we didn't know then that we know now is that police actually did find some really weird evidence that they wouldn't really talk about until 12 years after Ricky's death. So it actually turns out that Ricky had two cryptic notes on his body when he was found in 1999. I'll post these notes on the podcast social media accounts for those wondering about what they entail. Now, local authorities could not decipher said notes, and therefore they brought in the FBI's Cryptanalysis and Racketeering Records Unit, or the CRRU, and the American Cryptogram Association. This crew attempted to decipher the notes, which were reportedly found in Ricky's pocket. According to the KMOV4 website, the FBI has emphasized that the characters in the notes, which seem to be kind of like an unknown code, were not actually that random. Rather, they seem to be patterns and sequences. Numerous letter E's, references to the numbers 71, 74, and 75, and focus on the repetition of the letters NCBE for the referencing the KMOV4 website. But other than that, there hasn't been any further luck in deciphering the codes and really to figure out what the notes actually mean. So the FBI put out a call out on their website in 2011 in order to try and get help from the public to decipher the code. However, to this day, aka when I'm recording this, there has been no cracking down of these notes. I do want to mention that apparently Ricky's family didn't know about the notes until the FBI had actually put the call out in order to try and decode it, which that's a major slap in the face and something I don't necessarily agree with. It never sits well with me when family members don't get the full details of a case until it's been released to the public by means of the media. And that's how they find out. They find out from somebody sharing a story or, you know, sharing a news article. And I, I mean, I don't know the logistics behind it, but I personally, if I was in that situation, I would want to know before the rest of the world knows. Nonetheless, here's where things get a little bit confusing and where I came across a lot of discrepancies over various resources. As mentioned earlier, Ricky allegedly was considered illiterate. However, investigators claim that he experimented with codes and ciphers. Investigators reportedly felt that Ricky was the one who wrote the notes and even suspected that perhaps Ricky wrote the note in a shorthand over a few years. However, some believe that it was maybe someone involved with Ricky's death that wrote the notes for a multitude of different reasons. Now, on top of this, we have some family members and friends who believe that Ricky wrote the note while we have others that don't. We even have family and friends who completely disagree that Ricky wrote things in code or in his own language. Basically, we have different groups within this situation that have different perspectives and theories on what happened, which whatever the actuality of the situation is, there was no previous writings from Ricky that were, from what I gathered, reviewed or analyzed against the notes. I could be wrong on that, but I didn't see anything that stated that they took previous notes by Ricky and compared it to the notes that were found on him. 
Although the case is considered still unsolved to this day, there have been some publicly stated suspects in association to Ricky's death. These suspects are as such and allegedly have not been charged or convicted to the murder of Ricky. The first one I'll touch on is a man named Gregory Lamar Knox. According to reports, Gregory has been described as a high-level drug dealer who operated in Ricky's neighborhood. Some accounts, such as a Mental Floss article, noted that Gregory dealt drugs in the same housing complex where Ricky lived, so he was pretty close location-wise to Ricky. Gregory has also been allegedly suspected in several other homicides in the area. On top of all of his alleged history, apparently a confidential informant spilled some tea to police that Gregory was the one responsible for the murder of an unnamed black man. This disclosed black man was described as someone who worked at a gas station whose body was then dumped near West Alton, which kind of fits Ricky's description. Despite this, though, police have not yet been able to actually link Gregory to the murder of Ricky. When it comes to Gregory, he was arrested on July 25th, 2000 for drug-related charges. He supposedly pled guilty the following year, and based on a 2012 article, he was looking to be released come November of 2013. What's interesting is that Gregory reportedly responded by email while in prison that he didn't have any information regarding Ricky's case. The next publicly pointed suspects include Juma Hamdala and his brother Baha or Bob Hamdala. Supposedly, Juma owned the gas station Ricky once worked at, and Bob was once Ricky's co-worker. According to a Mental Floss article, Ricky was traveling to Florida to pick up the packages of marijuana and deliver them to the Hamdala brothers. Now, when it comes to the brothers, I'm going to use a direct quote from that Mental Floss article, which will be in today's resource list to kind of give more of a background on them, because it's kind of interesting. Quote, both Bob and his brother Juma had violent histories. Only two months after McCormick's death, Juma opened fire at Bob during an argument, which Bob survived. Bob, meanwhile, had ties to drug trafficking and gang members in St. Louis City, as well as a 1998 arrest for second-degree assault, he beat a man with a hammer, on his record. In 2002, Bob went to prison after shooting a customer in the face after an argument, although he was released in 2008 after a retrial determined that he acted in self-defense, end quote. Based on what I gathered online, again, neither Bob or Juma have been charged with the murder of Ricky. And based on what I gathered online, there hasn't been any updates of either of the brothers. So in terms of suspects, that was kind of all I was able to figure out online at this point in time. So with that, Let's wrap up this week's case. The death of Ricky McCormick has remained a mystery for over 24 years. I have said in previous episodes that I don't necessarily want to promote false hope by any means and say that this case will be solved one day because, of course, I don't know that for certain. I do hope for the sake of Ricky's family and friends that there will be some answers someday, whether it's cracking the code of the two notes left behind or some other reason. Let me know what you think about this case by commenting on today's episode post over on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or by shooting me an email. For anyone with information regarding Ricky's death, please don't hesitate to contact the St. Charles County Police Department at 636 949-3002. As always, if there is a case update, I will touch on it in a future episode. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. 
If you are streaming Weird Distractions or any podcast on a podcast platform that allows you to leave a rating or review, please consider leaving a rating or review because that is the best way and the cheapest way, because it's free, to support your favorite podcasts. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an episode is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find Weird Distractions over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and on TikTok. Do you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month? Why not join one of two tiers over on the Weird Distractions Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content, such as bonus episodes and bonus series, such as the Even Weirder series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early and ad-free access to regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Jennifer, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you and appreciate your support so much. Without you, Weird Distractions may not be what it is today. Lastly, I want to hear from you. I would love to collect your stories of paranormal encounters, too close to home true crime cases, maybe even some weird MLM experiences, or maybe just in general weird things that you've encountered so that I can continue to release the Listener Distractions series. And you might be tuning in for the first time and you might not know what I'm talking about. This is a series that Christy and I originally started where we would read your personal experiences on air. If you have a story you want to share, please email me at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections needed to be made after today's episode, please let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.